Mud Stories, Episode 54. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. I do fully believe and have hope for healing in the church. And I think a very good place to start is um, brokenness. And every single time when I feel utterly broken and empty, he meets me there and says, See, I love you. Not really kicking shame out as we should when we believe really does lead to harbored unforgiveness, either, either toward yourself or toward others, there's there's no greater love than the love on the other side of forgiveness. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories, a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are not alone. Hey friends, welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. And if this is your first time joining me today, welcome, a big, huge welcome to you. I hope you find this to be the podcast that encourages you in whatever difficulty, adversity, whatever failure you're recovering from or even facing in the moment. It is my greatest desire that these interviews are encouraging and inspiring to you for you to know that God is sees you and that he is working in your situation no matter how it feels or what it looks like today. And so I am thrilled to bring to you today an interview that has come to mean so much to me. And I think the reason is, is because I found a kindred spirit in Amber Haynes. And there's something to be said about when you walk through deeply broken places, when you've made choices that shattered your life circumstances, or you experience something that has been inflicted on you that causes you great pain, there's something to be said about finding someone else who's been there too, someone who will be honest about the pain and just wrecked by what has happened, but so full of hope because of the God that can be found in the midst of our brokenness if we surrender it to him. And so Amber is here today. She is a writer, a blogger, an author who is releasing her very first book today entitled Wild in the Hollow on chasing desire and finding the broken way home. And that's exactly what she writes about all the desire that she faced, all the sin, all the shame, all the unforgiveness, all the temptation, the deep devastation that she experienced in the church. And All of it she describes with such transparency and candidness and yet with so much grace and wisdom. I loved my conversation with her. I hope that you will love it too. I pray that you'll hear her talking directly to your heart and for you most of all to know today that no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've chosen, no matter what's been done to you, God sees you and he loves you. And there is hope for you today. 
And so quickly, before we get to that interview, I just want to make you aware, if you want to receive some of Amber's quotes today, some of her wisdom from this interview, I've put it in a PDF of show notes, and you can get that by just using the text messaging on your phone. So all you have to do is text the words episode 54, no spaces, to the number 33444, and you'll receive a reply asking for your email, and when you text your email back, it will deliver the PDF of the show notes directly to your inbox. And so I hope that blesses you greatly. Amber has um, a lot to share, and we talked for quite a while, and so I hope that you enjoy this amazing conversation, this encouragement from Amber Haynes. Enjoy. Hi, Amber. I am so glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, we've met one time in person, although it was brief and you might not even remember, but you were on your way to dinner at the Illum conference in the lobby and I got to say hi to you. And um, your eyes are big and beautiful and your smile (laughs) is so wide. And I just was taken back by your warm charm and generosity and that sweet accent of yours. And so I just am so happy you're here. You're welcome. You're welcome. So you are releasing your very first book this week, a memoir about chasing desire and finding your broken way home. And I have to tell you, I feel so connected to you because I've been through my own deep, dark, broken places too. And I think that's why I love memoir so much because it helps us get a glimpse of your story and someone's life. And it helps us get to know someone. I I always say reading someone's book, if it's a memoir, is like you get this own private coffee date with that person for like five hours. (laughs) And, um, and you really do feel connected. I don't know if you've experienced that with reading. Has that happened to you? Oh, yes. And I love, I love nonfiction too. So yeah, me too. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and your writing, I, I found it to be so lovely and poetic and lyrical and I, I found myself nodding and yesing to some of the analogies and just the way you wove your words. I could just picture the word pictures you were painting. And I read it in 24 hours. I just couldn't put it down. And when it was over, I have to tell you, I hugged it like I had made a sweet new friend and that it it had been too early to say goodbye to it. I was I was so moved. So just right here at the start. Thank you so much for being faithful to write what not only happened to you, but how God met you in it. And I can't wait to talk to you about it. So maybe you can start by introducing yourself to everybody. Uh, You know, tell us a little bit about your family and where you live and what you like to do. Sure, sure. Well, first, thank the Lord for giving me an interesting story because you just can't make this stuff up. (laughs) (laughs) So where I sit presently is in Arkansas and I have four little boys and I'm married to Seth Haynes, who is a character all into himself. And I'm from Alabama originally. And I grew up with a life centered around church and around family, all the important healthy things that we tell ourselves we need, I had. And I I grew up in the country at the base of a mountain. And so this is where the word hollow comes in to the picture from the title. Um, and, and the funny thing, the, the comedy in this 
facts is that I never heard the word hollow in my entire life. I mean, in my growing up years, it was always holler. So, um, <laughs> isn't that funny? So when I, when <laughs> there may be some people in Alabama who say wild in the holler, and this is not a joke. So anyway, the hollow at the bottom of the mountain is just, you know, actual physical land that's empty that can be filled with, I think of it as voices because I remember hearing, um, like the neighbors down the road, we could call to each other or you could hear, um, somebody's four wheeler and you could hear from my house all the way to my grandmother's house, my little, my little brother's playing. And I really did have this beautiful Eden like experience in my growing up years. That's how I look back on it. Home, you know, so that's, that's the, that's where the title comes from. And then it evolves. The meaning of hollow evolves from there. Well, I'd love it if you would take us back and just maybe start from the beginning where your mud started, because it sounds like a very picturesque upbringing. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it sounds like, you know, everything was lined up and easy and yet it wasn't. Can you, right. can you start there? Well, yeah. I mean, I I think if I start there, I'm going to be telling everybody's story because I I think this is just what it means to be human. You know, I'm not, I say in the book, I'm not so naive to think that everyone has this picturesque childhood at all or has ever really experienced what it means to be home. But I still feel like we're all looking for it. We we all carry about in us a homesickness. So I think my story makes its own little twist how a lot of people's do when I became self-aware, like um, even in sexuality, even in recognizing the culture around me and how sex is power mm-hmm. and um, recognizing in myself that all the things that I was doing in youth group and all the ways I was trying to please the pe- the good people around me, they were not satisfying to me. And they didn't feel any kind of hollow for me. Mm-hmm. But that desire to make those people happy or to be accepted and to have my fit never left me. And so on one hand, I grew up really working hard, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all youth group activities to, to fit that mold. Uh, but on the other hand, and I mean, truly living a double life, um, started having sex at a young age, using drugs and just living a completely separate life of rebellion, trying to find my freedom, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that I, I think this happens to a lot of people who grow up in the church, especially if it seems like there's an emphasis on rules? Do you think that the double life that you began to create for yourself was more out of a response to a rule-driven environment, or was it just an internal motivator or personality-driven result? I think it's both. Yeah. I think I really and truly didn't understand grace. Mm. Like, I, I mean, not even remotely. I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really thought it, whether or not it was taught to me explicitly, because I don't think it was. I mean, we grew up singing "Amazing Grace," mm-hmm. even even by the hymns alone. I have no excuse. 
you know, the words were there that um, the scripture was there. I had, but, 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 you know, maybe it is the culture and I don't think it is at all just in the church of Christ. I think I spent a long time thinking, Oh, it's my particular upbringing in this particular church. I just think it's humanity mm-hmm. um, that we think that we're going to be able to do it. We're going to be able to pull this off. If we do X, Y, and Z, then we will stand in grace with God and really standing in good grace with God has nothing to do with <laughs> right anything that we've done. And so, you know, I read, I grew up reading the Bible. I just did not have an understanding. I didn't. And so I, I think it's, I think it's a, a, a mix of everything, but I don't think it's that foreign of a story, even though mine is kind of dramatic, you know, where when I, when I came to faith, I was, um, you know, addicted to drugs and had a, you know, pretty rough life. But the story is the same, even for people who, you know, finally just meet the Lord, finally feel like they understand that he loves them. Yeah, it's one thing to understand cerebrally about grace and to sing hymns and learn words And I think that's all good. I mean, some people will say, you know, those words are irrelevant. They're not going to matter. But I think there is something to be said for memorizing songs and words that later when we need them, they come back. They're in our heart, you know, Um, especially as our kids are concerned. But I think for me, too, I can relate to thinking that I understood what grace was intellectually. But it wasn't until I really needed God's grace, (laughs) that it became so very real to me. And then the gratitude from that, realizing that, like you had just said, it's nothing we do to gain God's grace. It's already been given to us. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, when, when there's nothing to hang that idea on, no life experience, I I feel sad for for youth because it is a hard thing to let your story be written, to make decisions and to, you know, it's life is tough. It is tough for everybody. Yes. And something that I don't want to forget is how hard it is to be a teenager. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to forget it. And, and really I need the grace on my, on my young ones too. My oldest is 10 and there are, there are real struggles, real heartache and being allowed to be honest about your brokenness and things you don't understand and things that frustrate you, I think is, is pivotal. Not, not just now, but, but for, for the little, at every single age. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, too. I mean, as you were feeling broken, I mean, living a double life as a teenager, young adult, sex, drug addiction, um, all that comes with that. I mean, there's so much. We could probably spend an hour talking about just that because I know for a fact from the emails I get, there are people struggling with that mud today. Oh, yeah. And it's very real and very hard. And even if it's not a direct struggle today, the past is haunting them, you know, the the guilt and the shame. But I think it's so important, even for our little kids, like you're saying, to create a space where it's okay to be broken, that that can be the normal thing. Like when you get a bad grade on your test, it's okay to be disappointed. We don't have to pretend like it 
should have gone differently, or I, I just really think learning from our mistakes is really what God would desire for us because the grace, like we talked about, is there. You know, it's already there, but God wants to grow us through our adversity and through our mud, I think. And I know from reading your words that he's done that for you. So how do you think we can allow even our kids to have the freedom to be broken and it's still to be okay and we can be open and talk about it? Well, I mean, it's not easy. When, when we're talking about our little ones, even this week, I've experienced that where I had one who was heartbroken toward me and he was able to say it out loud and it hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and I cried and it was in those tears that we, we came to a new, a new place in our relationship and it was really, really good. Um, you know, I think about my kids a lot and how they move forward because they're going to have to deal with shame. I mean, I think we, we all know that shame is being offered to us around every single corner. And, um, it's really hard to not live like the culture around us. And that's, that's what I did because the church wasn't feeling that, um, filling me. It wasn't satisfying to me. How so? Talk to me about that. Well, I mean, these were the days of WWJD, what would Jesus do Mm -hmm. bracelets and our t-shirts had Bible verses on the back of them. And this is all good. I mean, what would Jesus do is a marvelous question. We should be asking ourselves all the time, but it wasn't, it was a thing that we did. We created our own little Jesus club. I never understood that I could be outside of that and still be loved by the Lord Mm. or still be loved by my family and my church people. I didn't understand that. And, and so really the story is that when I was 15, this is me just throwing it all out there. When I was 15, I lost my virginity and he was a lot older than I was. I, looking back on it, I was a child. Hmm. I was a child. That's that's five years older than my oldest now. And I went home and and made the decision. Really, I agreed with the lie that there was no no way that I was going to be able to walk that line. I was never going to be good enough for Jesus. I was never going to be good enough for His people. Hmm. And. I I wasn't allowed to be broken and I was broken. I mean, I was flat out broken and I decided I'm not going to try anymore. This is me. This is who I am. And my identity shifted. And so purity was, I mean, that was a joke. That was a total joke. And, And this was like height of purity culture. I thought people who were signing agreements saying they wouldn't have sex till they got married. I thought they were cuckoo pants. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you're probably not the only one that was having a double life dilemma. Oh, no. No. No, no. But no one talked about it. And and I don't really even know that the church actually said you're not going to be in, you know, if you messed up, you're not going to be in. But Mm -mm. but so tragic that that was the message that was heard. Oh, yes. It was. And, and really, in a lot of ways, to me, it kills my heart to think of 
that we would just have the conversation about the ways that the church, you know, didn't reflect Christ because, um, because I love the church and I have seen Jesus over and over and over again. Um, and, and Jesus was skin on pouring out grace to people in some rock bottom places. And so, you know, I, I definitely want to be clear to say that I, I do fully believe and have hope for healing in the church. And I think a very good place to start is um, brokenness. And in, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, that he endured the cross and despising shame. Hmm. And I cannot get that out of me. Mm-hmm. that Jesus was a despiser of shame. And that's actually why he died. I mean, it's it's actually what he went battling is this thing that we heap on ourselves and on other people over and over again. A lot of times we think shame is the motivator to do better or to do right. You know, like shame on you. You shouldn't be like this. And I'm totally guilty, especially with my own children, I have, I have utterly failed at this over and over again, but it's when I look like you said, you didn't understand grace until you needed it. Um, he has shown me again and again that he does not want me to bear up under shame. And even this is kind of, I don't know, this may be edgy thing for me to say, but even in struggles that I can't seem to kick, like, um, like, consumerism. I just can't seem to kick this addiction that I have to more and more and more. I have very good seasons, Mm. but that is, this is my, you know, (laughs) live confession with you. (laughs) I can't seem to kick it. I write about it in the book and then I'll have beautiful times. And and then, um, I will be, I will be consumed by shame. I think this is what I hear from people who struggle with pornography. Yes. People, you know, all these things that are habitual sins. I do fully believe and have hope for healing in the church. And I think a very good place to start is um, brokenness. Mm -hmm. And the Lord is meant to be our covering. He is our hiding place. And the more that we just let ourselves soak in this shame, the more we're denying the freedom that Christ has to offer. And so even in these seasons where I've been struggling and a failure and I'm, I can look at him and say, I'm, I'm broken. Like, like I am not getting this right. And I need you to fix me. Those laid out low places for me are, that's when I actually do find freedom. I, I feel like when I can go about my day recognizing, Ooh, that's shame. This thought that keeps looping in my head, that mm-hmm. is shame. And I kick it out. That is the the more free I become from this consumerism or from um, harboring unforgiveness towards someone who's hurt me. Kicking out the shame sets me free to forgive. It sets me free to not be um, buying. I feel like I have to buy, like satisfaction is going to come through something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can relate so very much. And I think, you know, as I hear the stories of others that they share with me as well, you know, the question always rings out, how, how do we shed the shame? And I think for me, you know, I lived over a decade of shame 
um, before I finally made a decision. And that's what I'm hearing you say. It is a decision to surrender it. Um, and I think, I think we really minimize the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross to provide the grace that he's already given. We minimize that gift that he gave us by picking up that shame and refusing to lay it down again and again. He's already paid the price for us and he doesn't require us to carry shame around in any sort. Uh, I'm wondering how practically have you found ways to decide to surrender the shame and and maybe some practical ways for somebody who might be listening today who is really drowning in shame who just can't get it out of their head what they've done or the decisions they've made the consequences from those decisions so long ago that they're still facing because even though God's grace covers and we are forgiven and his love keeps us there's still consequences to our decisions and so mm-hmm. what are some practical ways you've found that you can make the decision to lay down and lose the guilt or shame mm-hmm. I- <laughs> You know, take every thought captive sounds like a super big job and it doesn't sound very practical. Like notice what you're thinking, but it's the only way that I know to say it. Um, I, I think so often we're waiting until we get better to go to Jesus. <laughs> yeah. We're waiting to get better to then hand over the shame. Like well, when I, you know, like if I haven't, you know, done that thing for a month or if I haven't, or if I've actually you know, wanted to have sex a few times, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of people struggle in their sexuality and, and, and just are so burdened and we wait till we can feel better about it or like fully believe I'm never going to do that again. Now you can have my shame. We cannot do that. That is not healing. That is Mm -hmm. a bootstraps mentality. That is, like you said, it's not, it's not really fully trusting and and believing. I think it's interesting that the language in Romans 1 is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And the that shame, I think, looking through verses in the Bible that just talk about yeah. shame. Well, and I love that verse that you, that you mentioned because it goes on to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it <laughs> is the power of uh-huh. God unto salvation to those who believe. So, It's God's power, not our own striving. And I think that's where we fail. You know, that's where we fail to lay down the shame because we think it's our power and it's his power and he's already done it. He's already done it. And the freedom that we could be walking in. Um, I love that you talked about the promiscuity and that you were transparent about that. I think not enough people are talking about that because I think it goes on to affect our everyday lives, even after there's been healing that's taken place. Can you go back and talk a little bit more about what that led to as you were living that double life, you know, the the different sexual partners, the drugs, that kind of lifestyle? Um, what mud that led you further down and then you know, later, maybe we can talk about how even after some healing, you're still dealing with some of that, you know, in, in your current relationship. So where, where did it lead, though, from from that beginning point where you were living that lifestyle? 
Well, I mean, I chased freedom until I almost died. <laughs> like so free. Um, I, you know, I all along wanted to be a good girl. So never take that out of the picture. I always wanted to be pleasing to mm-hmm. my church and to my family. And I met a guy who was beautiful and he was a Christian and he sent me Bible verses and he got me pregnant. And I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be with him. Um, and I wanted his approval. Mm-hmm. I wanted God's approval too. I just couldn't ever seem to get the hang of the good girl thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, I moved to Arkansas from Alabama to go to a Christian, a Christian university because I wanted to be with the good kids. I really thought they would rub off on me a little bit. And I, you know, I didn't want to, I was tired. It had yeah. been since I 14, 15, um, it it's was exhausting. a five year run. I was exhausted. And mm-hmm. I mean, nights and nights without sleep. And so I wanted, I wanted them to be my friends. I wanted to be a part of that. And, um, I moved to Arkansas really the underneath of it was so I could have an abortion and when I did that, mm-hmm. I became, I became so sick. So I couldn't, I, my body didn't seem to heal. So it wasn't only this, um, mental, emotional sickness that I had been bearing for years, but it had turned into this truly physical, all encompassing thing. I was so sick. And a month after I had an abortion, I was still bleeding and I was still partying so hard. Mm. I woke up one morning with a hangover, saw myself in the mirror and didn't, I looked, I didn't even know who that girl was. I didn't recognize myself. And I got in the floor in on the linoleum and I prayed to die because that's really and truly what I wanted. And it was the first time I had prayed in a long time, which is an acknowledgement that I never didn't, I never didn't believe in God either. I never didn't think he was, wasn't watching me. I think that's a part of the shame I felt even. (laughs) Yeah. Like why couldn't I have lived what I was taught? Yeah, Mm -hmm, exactly. And so I prayed to die. I fully expected for the breath to leave my body and he descended on me in a way that was undeniable. He, um, dropped this knowledge into my brain that he loved me. And this is as much as uh, laying in the floor, begging to die was as much as I ever had to offer him in the way of salvation, that he loved me when I had nothing to offer. Mm. And it got me up off the floor. And I really believe my faith is 100% attached to my breath to me. Someone, um, Publishers Weekly wrote a review of my book and said that there was like a little negative hint to what they wrote. They liked it, but they were like, but she never seemed to doubt. And I I, I just shrug my shoulders and say, you know, praise God, because if I did, I I think I, I feel like I would die. And I know a lot of people struggle with doubt and my husband struggles with doubt very openly. And, mm-hmm. and there's no shame in that too. I mean, I think we have to be honest about where we are, but my faith is tied to my life. Like, 
it got me up. And um, even still, over and over again, I have thought that, okay, now, now I'm going to be able to be good enough and do this and this and this. And now the church is going to love me because I do believe in Jesus. And um, I'm going to have this amazing ministry and this role. And my identity just kept on shifting outside of him. And every single time it, when I feel completely, utterly broken and empty, he meets me there and says, see, I love you. Hmm. So over and over again, <laughs> I'm just learning that this, this image of, of that I have, this memory that I have of being in the floor with him is the most precious thing that I have. And um, I've seen how over and over again, he has met me in the floor and mm. in those low places. I see that, you know, not really kicking shame out as we should when we believe really does lead to harbored unforgiveness, either, either toward yourself or toward mm-hmm. others. And one of the things that I harbored was unforgiveness toward the church because when my husband and I first got married, we moved to be youth ministers in this mega Baptist church. And I, I mean, individuals, I look back and I, I loved them. I, I love them. They're amazing. But the church itself was sick and we were so hurt. And, and we left saying, you know, he's, he's not going to be a minister. He's going to be an attorney now. And I left saying, I'm not going to be a minister. I'm going to go be a poet. I'm going to go, I'm going to go do this thing over here that, um, that is better than what everybody over here is doing. Mm. And, um, I, I, I think that we can't understand deeply enough just how, um, much shame and unforgiveness are tied together. Yeah. And also how our, our love for the church and, and our grace toward the church is oftentimes the grace that we are actually believing for for ourselves. Mm. And, um, it took me a while and a really low place in my marriage. It took an emotional affair for me to see just how much I had hurt. I had held on to mm. even unforgiveness toward my husband. I just, you know, it ended up sin breeding sin kind yeah. of thing. Well, it's interesting you make that connection between shame and unforgiveness because I think not a lot of people maybe understand the ramifications of holding on to shame. I think we think sometimes that our sin and our failure is so profound, like our sin is so special yes. that uh, we are deserving to be shamed. You know, yes. shame is like my badge. Shame is my badge that I'm carrying around because I am a really bad sinner. Like I did top 10, like multiple top 10s, right? (laughs) If you think of the 10 commandments, like who thinks they're going to hit everyone? Yeah. Well, some of us, we are experts. So, um, yeah. And holding that badge of shame. And so even, um, even the unforgiveness grows towards our own hearts, but I think you're right. It does breed that attitude of unforgiveness towards others who need grace, because really, if we think that grace can't apply to us, then why should it get to apply to anybody else? Cause we need oh, it right. so desperately. Right. And so that bitterness, that root of bitterness, but mm-hmm. I wanted to go back and um, just 
totally agree with what you said about when God met you in that lowest place, because I, he meets us again and again at every low place. And it reminds me of, of Ephesians two, where it says, God being rich in mercy, because I'm all about mercy, mm-hmm. us not getting the punishment that we deserve from God, but instead getting the gift of his love, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And I love this next part. Even when we were dead in our transgressions or our sins or our failures, even then he comes and he meets us and he makes us alive together with Christ mm-hmm. by grace. And he raises us up with him and he seats us with him in heavenly places. And uh, we are his and he adopts us and we are heirs. And Romans 8 reminds us there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Um And so I was thinking all those things when you were sharing uh, that linoleum experience on the floor and just how faithful God is. I think sometimes those those of us who are in our lowest moments, maybe maybe you who are listening today, you're at a really low moment. Maybe you've doubted that you should even live today. Maybe you even have a plan. Maybe the depression is engulfing you or the shame or the guilt of what you've done is overwhelming you. If if. Amber and I can be of any encouragement to say to you today in your ear, whatever you're doing as you're listening to our voices, that God is faithful. If you just say a little prayer, just open your hands up toward heaven and you just ask him, God, meet me here and show me who you are. I think he is so faithful to say, ah, I've been waiting this whole time. I've like been right next to you, following you around, you know, like a bandaid. I'm stuck on you waiting for you to just ask, ask for me to come and meet you there. And it's just really powerful the way God transforms. And I think brokenness is that crack of vulnerability that he can best work in. And he does his greatest character work. And yet you and I both know that that uh, experience was not the end of your story. There's more cracks as we go. And I think throughout life, his great love holds us and his grace keeps us. But there's still struggle and consequences. And so as that unforgiveness was related to your shame and you felt like, oh, I've achieved that good girl status now, you know, I'm in the church, I'm serving. And yet you saw their inadequacies, you know, because no church is perfect, as beautiful as, and and really we're speaking, we should say of the North American church, um, because the world, (laughs) the worldwide church has so much for us to learn from them and how they love. Um, I, I think they're so in touch with their neediness more than we are. We have a harder time. And you've talked about that a little bit in the book about, you know, just the quest for getting things and having things and just our viewpoint and perspective is just so distorted by our culture. But that that unforgiveness uh, toward the church started to build and you both shifted, you and your husband. And I'd love to spend some time talking. If you could share with us, how did for you, an emotional affair developed? Because I think there's a lot of women who might be living in a place where they might be that good girl. They might not really relate to the big top tens, maybe. I mean, maybe so. But they just have found themselves in a place in their marriage or in their relationship where 
it just feels dull. It feels ho-hum. There's stuff that's happened that's been under the bridge that feels like there's too much to retract back, too much to sort through, hard to go there. And uh, that really is the fertile ground for affairs, whether it's emotional or physical. And so can you share with us how that sort of insidiously worked its way in and hooked you? Yeah. I mean, I I actually think it took years and and I would have called you a liar for sure. If someone had told me on down the road, you're going to be in an emotional affair. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really do think it goes back to the forgiveness piece of making sure that we are doing our forgiveness work. I think that's why the, um, the Lord's prayer is so important that we, that we forgive others as we want to be, as we hope to be forgiven. Um, and I think every time we experience, experience a wounding or a brokenness that we must be so honest about our pain And too many times we go around, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Let me just eat this cake. I'll be fine. You know, we're covering (laughs) it up. I'll be fine. I'll order myself some clothes. I'll feel better. Right. And um, we're constantly covering ourselves up, which is just another recipe for shame. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's not, a lot of our shame isn't stuff that we did. It's stuff that's been done to us. Yes. And um, beyond our control, which makes us even crazier. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we feel like we have the right to harbor unforgiveness mm-hmm. even or to damage our bodies by overeating or whatever it is that we're doing. For for me and Seth, when we left the church so crushed, we tried to heal that wounding by pursuing um, success in academics. And for Seth, who is a genius. He's amazing. His mind is amazing. He went to law school and poured himself in 100%. And he was on the law review. He was in the top 10 of his class. Um, He made the highest score on the bar exam and I was at home by myself. And this is part of my story and we're very open about it. We've had a lot. I mean, this is, this is a huge part of the story. Actually, I didn't realize how much I was harboring unforgiveness and being silent about my pain. Mm. Um, that is so important to just park there for mm-hmm. a second because oh, yeah. I don't know what it is about not feeling like we can talk about it. Maybe it feels like nobody else in the world is going through what we're going through or we minimize like, oh, I'm just being selfish. I should be supportive. You know, it's mm-hmm. silence is part of the... Um, igniting of vulnerability towards this sort of thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to cover it up. I was Mm -hmm. trying to hide from my pain. And so I thought when I came to my crossroad of being of this opportunity to have an affair, which didn't even feel like a choice. It more just is kind of like I woke up one day and then there I was in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that my sin so outweighed Seth's that I never, I I didn't even know. It was so tangled up inside me that so much of what was going on in my heart was unforgiveness. 
And it, there was one point that he called me and said, I'm not going to be home again. I'm so sorry. And I said, I don't care. I don't care. Don't come home. Like, I don't even feel it anymore. I'm fine. And then another day I said, I want you to know that I'm in a fair waiting to happen. So I literally even knew it. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm lonely. So I did come to a place where I voiced it and I didn't deal with it. I just spoke it like numb and dead on the inside. So I covered it so much until I was numb, spoke it out loud, didn't go back to deal with it. Then, you know, the the man that I shared an office with that I had this emotional affair with, he's never who I wanted. It wasn't even... (laughs) This like, oh, he's so much better than Seth. It was never anything like that. It was just another way to to get rid of my pain. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to the healer. And I certainly wasn't going to my husband. There came a time, though, that, that the Lord came after me. And I, you know, I made a decision where I'm not going to live like that. I was pregnant. I got pregnant during that time. Um you know, with Seth, of course, and it's like, I want, I want, you know, I want this family. He, yeah. he is who I want. And so I shut it down, but I was still completely silent about it. I never told a soul what had gone on inside me. And that shame that I carried from that, from not dealing with all that stuff and not even knowing how much unforgiveness I harbored, it actually caused a lot of physical problems in my life, a lot of emotional, mental issues, Mm -hmm. deep despair, depression, and anxiety. I could not get over it. Um, I ended up having to have heart surgery. I had chest pain all the time. And I was, I ended up, I felt like I was going to die. I was swallowed up in fear. And um, the Lord actually spoke to me, this is going to sound cuckoo pants. Just, <laughs> this is my story. Okay. <laughs> he, I love you. <laughs> thanks. Oh. He spoke up to me in a dream and he spoke to Seth in a dream in the same night. And mm. we woke up early and it was like four o'clock in the morning. He was sitting in the living room and I walked in and he said, I hate to have to ask you to do this, but is there something you haven't told me? And I sat down and I told him, and it was awful. It was painful because I had, I had tried to deal with it as best I could. And I felt better confessing it even, but, but Seth was in so much pain. And there was one little episode where I was weeping in the shower uncontrollably. I had mascara like running down to my toes and I got out of the shower and was so beside myself, I wasn't even like trying to dry off. Like I just got out and I'm soaking wet. And Seth walked in the bathroom and he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, I need you to forgive me for leaving you during law school. Because he was trying to cover up his mm-hmm. pain by pouring into his studies. Mm-hmm. And it had never dawned on me that I hadn't forgiven him until that moment, until he asked me, will you forgive me? And I broke, you know, my sin so outweighed his that I had never even dealt with that. And, um, and we, from there were able to rebuild and, um, start over and we were new. We were new. 
And it's something that I say a lot that I just never want to stop saying. There's, there's no greater love than the love on the other side of forgiveness. And I think a lot of times we don't want to, we don't want to hurt. That's why we're not going to the Lord. We think, we don't think we'll be able to withstand it. Yeah. And, and there is pain involved, but I mean, discipline, there's pain involved in discipline. There's pain involved in seeing your own Mm -hmm. sin. Um, and a lot of times, even when someone else has hurt you, I mean, it just, it just is not easy to go back to the moment of pain and say, I forgive you. I for, I release this to the Lord. And sometimes you have to do it over and over again, a thousand times a day. But the healing that comes on the other side of that, the love and the intimacy that comes on the other side of that, maybe not with a person that hurt you, but within your relationship with the Lord, it is, it is undeniable. Yeah. What resonates with me about what you mentioned is that it was never about wanting that guy over your husband. Mm -hmm. It was about the emotional needs, the attention, the affection, the connection, being seen. Those needs weren't being met in your marriage. And it's, it's like a drug to finally, when you haven't been having that attention and affection, it's like a drug when you finally get it, you're like, oh. You know, I don't want to give that up, even though it's not necessarily connected to something that I really want or a path that I want to choose. And I love that the forgiveness that came from Seth really was a catalyst to begin your healing and your surrendering of shame. But I'm guessing that there weren't always just only sweet words. I'm, I'm guessing there was some no. intensity, some, mm-hmm. oh, you yeah. know, was difficult because not everybody necessarily can depend on that person offering forgiveness. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, he, he, he did not trust very much that came out of my mouth for a while. I mean, he questioned every single thing that we ever did. He had a hard time believing that it was not a physical affair and, you know, instead of only an emotional affair and, you know, it it was hard. It was so hard. I think though it's, it's been a, a lot of years since this happened. I actually think that making connections with other people, with other men, other women, other, you know, whatever, finding something that like feels good. Like you said, a drug, whatever the thing is that we do to to cover up the pain. It's actually superhuman and very easy to do. I don't even think we have to be like in a bad place at all. Um, that's a good point. I think that, you know, I'm a connector. I can go in super, super deep with people, especially if I'm dealing, if I'm talking with someone who is kind of like me mm-hmm. and Seth and I have an agreement well, I'm, we're just very honest about how we connect with other people. Um, so if there is a man that has come into our lives that I feel super connected with, I'm, I'm, I have said to Seth before um, hey, I really probably don't need to be alone in the room with this fella. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. we have that kind of relationship now, and I'm so, so grateful. I, yeah. I think the the real thing is when when those kind of things, when we are tempted, when those things come about, that we would immediately 
you know, be like Joseph and leave our, our coat in the hands of Potiphar's wife behind us, that we would just, that we would immediately turn. I think those things come. I don't, I don't think that we need to say, oh, well, I was tempted or I had a really intense connection with another man. And so I am, you know, this, this, and this, because then we can hear even worse lies after. Right. Well, the fear is that we're going to be rejected or thought less of Uh by being honest. Right. And, um, I have some personal experience in this area, Mm -hmm. I will say. And I think for me, I think a few things. Number one, believing the lie that this can't happen to you. Oh, right. Um, Because as a, as a young 20, whatever I was back then, 24, I think, maybe I was 25, grown up in the church. I didn't think that an affair was something, that adultery was something that I would ever be capable of doing. Right. And so that's where the danger lies. Number one is a lack of awareness. Mm -hmm. Number two, silence fuels the flame Mm -hmm. of sin. Um, And it feels good to have attention paid to you. It feels good to feel connected again. It feels good to have those fluttery feelings and for somebody to think you're amazing. And I can't, you know, my husband and I now knowing what we know, having been where we've been, uh, we have those same rules you and Seth have. And and not really rules as far as you have to keep this rule, but just Mm -hmm. like convictions of safety and protection of the specialness and sacredness of our relationship now. Um, You know, if we meet another couple, a lot of times this happens a lot with couples friends Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, when you're working on projects together or a lot of work part, you know, work connections or whatnot. But we have that same agreement, you know, even to the point where I'll say, you know, I can tell that this person I might have that spark with, there's just some people you have a spark with. There there Mm -hmm. just is. And I think before I was married the first time, I never even thought or imagined that you could feel connected to someone other than the person you're married to. I don't know what planet I was living on, but it clearly wasn't this one. (laughs) I was on that planet too. (laughs) Yeah. I just thought, well, I'm getting married and I'm, you know, I love God and that's going to be great, you know? And, um, and so I think the the secrecy, number one, the awareness, number two, that silent secrecy really fuels the fl- the fire. And you don't want to tell at that point, because when you're at, at that emotional affair point, mm-hmm. number one, you don't really even realize you're entangled. Right. You know, you don't you want to be in denial because you don't want to deal with every stage has its own pain. And unfortunately we dig ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper until pretty soon it's manifesting in our physical lives too, is is what I heard you describe. Anyway. So what I was going to say is we, I will say to him, you know, I will tell you right now, babe, these are people that we really need to not pursue. We just, I I just Mm -hmm. feel like, and that might sound harsh, Um, that we restrict relationships and it's really only happened once or twice in our 15 years of marriage. But, um, I feel like where I've been, I never want to go again and, um, sacrificing the potential of a fun friendship is the least I can do to prevent myself from the path that I've already walked. And so I think the honesty component is so key. What other things 
do you think as people are dealing with healing, surrendering shame and grief and guilt, it really does affect our current relationships. I know you talk a little bit about in the book how once you got married, sex was unexpectedly difficult. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and some the difficulties we face because of our past, maybe some of what you've faced since the emotional affair and in, uh, you know, rebuilding and healing. And I think it's important for people to know that they're not alone in struggling through the consequences of our choices, even when we lay down our shame. Yeah. Sex is not easy for me. Um, I, I was great at it before I got married and I loved it. <laughs> so it's very unfortunate that, um, that then I would get married and think that I was doing it wrong or it, you know, I, I don't know that now, now I'm pure and holy and it doesn't, it's, it was, it's just been hard for me. It's always going to be a, a point of surrender in my life. You're not the only one. And that's what I, I wanted you to talk about it because yeah. I don't think a lot of people are talking about it. No, they aren't. And, and, and women are living in these private, painful places mm -hmm. where they feel like failures, mm -hmm. their previous promiscuity or their not even promiscuity. Maybe they've had one other partner or whatever. Maybe they had premarital sex with the person they married and then it was great before marriage. And now it's difficult after, you know, from your experience, I'd love to hear more about that because I think people need to know they're not alone. Oh yeah. I mean, and I hear this even more from women who never had sex before they got married that, um, it, it is just, it's very hard to transition into, um, being free with our bodies and, and, and desire, which is what my book is about but physical desire being given to us so that we can experience intimacy with our husbands as a metaphor for the intimacy that we can have with our Lord is first off, that is so cuckoo. That is so crazy that he gave us this like pleasurable, beautiful thing. Um, I, I think of prayer a lot of times too. And it's hard. I mean, a lot of women will, will follow through with the metaphor of like, that kind of like sexual intimacy with God. And I have a hard time making that leap too. Yeah. But my husband I, especially I, has that hard uh, leap. He's like, how are men supposed to uh, get that analogy? You know, cause like, <laughs> I'm not feeling the sex with God thing. <laughs> right. No, I'm not feeling yeah. that either, but I do believe the intimacy thing. And I do believe about, um, even the indwelling thing, even the idea of conception, about the Lord, the Holy Spirit being like a seed implanted in us. I mean, all these metaphors are so rich and so deep, and we could spend a lifetime meditating on the beauty of sex. So, of course, that's going to be attacked. Of course, that's going to be a, the place that people struggle with shame. Well, I love that you wrote shame is directly opposed to intimacy. And and when you're yeah. still carrying shame of the past failure, the past guilt, um, you know, sex really is about intimacy. So if you're if, if shame is directly opposed to intimacy, then, you know, it makes sex really difficult. It does. It really does. 
Um, I, I have had seasons, and I'm going to say this out loud because I feel like there are people who out there that probably need to hear it. Um, I have seasons that I don't want to be touched at all. I do not. I don't. I have four little boys, and I think the motherhood thing makes it hard because I'm always touched. Yeah. Is that back to the brokenness? I don't want it to break. I don't want to face whatever is in my heart that I need to face to be open to touch even. And a lot of times what's happening like in the physical is mirroring what's happening in the spirit and, and, you know, mentally. And it's, it's a, it's a place of wounding for me. And, and I have, I have had a lot of healing, a whole lot of healing. I really have. Um, but it is still a, a surrender point for me. It's something that I pray about a lot too. And he is, um, been really good to give me desire the Lord has and um and joy and I mean and total intimacy like we have had beautiful beautiful stages so I I have a lot of hope I have a lot of hope well I Um, I love that you um mention hope because that's how I would love to end our time together because you write hope is never without a weight It's never without a weight. We always have hope, but a lot of times it's hard to wait in hope. And you encourage us to expose the hollowness of our own desire to know the satisfaction of the wild love of God. And that if we do not see God's love, it is our eyes that have moved because he is the satisfaction of all our desires. And um, I've just loved my time with you. And I'm wondering... What practical things can can you offer today to somebody who has listened to us talk, who has carried shame, who wants to surrender it, who wants intimacy with God to facilitate their intimacy with their human relationships? How can they practically um, move their desire towards that wild love of God that is just waiting right there for them. I'd say get in the floor mm-hmm. as many times as it takes and wait on him there and ask him your questions out loud. Ask him to show you what woundings you've hidden from, what um, what unforgiveness you've harbored. Ask him to show you your pain even. I think just facing the pain and being honest about our brokenness um, and our heartache. And I also think that making every effort to seek out shame in all the places it can be found so that you can despise it for other yeah. people. Because in doing that, you're showing people the Lord. You're having grace. You are, um, I think, acting out in our giftings within the kingdom of God is very huge in our healing because we, we get to see God at work, even in us, even in my brokenness, he came and he healed me and he gave me life. And I think if we boast in our weaknesses and, and throw away 
anything that encumbers us, every sin that encumbers us from thinking that we are any different from the poor, like having a poor association, um, when we can say, I am weak and I am broken, that's the very point that his strength pours in. This is how we experience resurrection. And what would you say to a person who might be thinking today, you know, that's nice, Amber. You have your sweet Seth that is open to asking for forgiveness, even when he's been, you know, wronged. You have a community of friends of faith that can, you can speak honestly to. How does someone even begin? Maybe they haven't told anyone. Maybe they haven't, they just are, are just, they can't see light. They can't see the light today. Um, did counseling help you? Did friendship, like, ultimately it's God? I think that ultimately all these metaphors, like things things that I do have, like I have my home now. I have my husband. I have my four children. I have my community. And um, what I've seen is that those things are broken and they break. They are shakable. But there is a kingdom that is unshakable. And all of these metaphors are really only here to point us to God's character and his presence and his love. And the intimacy that you can have with a man is, is really that. That is actually, that's not the real, that's not even the real thing. It's, it's a metaphor. And I think a lot of times we waste our energy worshiping the metaphor instead of who the metaphor is pointing us to. So our goals are wrong. You know, the goal of an intimate marriage is really not the goal. The goal is, I mean, it is, but, but behind that is just deep, deep intimacy with God, which takes time invested and surrender and getting really gut level honest with our own hearts because seeking out that shame and tracking it down and that unforgiveness that takes a lot of work and a lot of self-reflection and it's hard. And I think that's why a lot of people would rather just settle for their little victim badge of shame that they carry around. And I love that you brought out the fact that um, we should chase down others and shatter the shame we see in them and just lavish love on them so that they can see that they can become free too. That's just Mm -hmm. what the body of Christ is all about, right? Loving, loving the Lord with all our heart and loving others as ourselves. And um, so Jesus said, well, Amber, thank you so much for coming to share your mud with me. I, I feel so honored that you, you know, have spoken with such candor and transparency. And I'm just praying really honestly with all my might that somebody out there would have hope today because of what you dared to share. Yeah, thank you. Uh, where can everybody find you online and track you down and find your book? Well, my website is Amber C. Haynes, and it's H-A-I-N-E-S dot com. And my book is called Wild in the Hollow. And so if you just go to wildinthehollow.com, you can find me in all my places. I like to be on Facebook a little bit and that kind of thing. So it's pretty easy. Awesome. Well, I will link to all of that in the show notes. And um, just sending much love to you and Seth today. And for the release of your book, I'm 
just can't be more thrilled for you. I'm cheering wildly from here. Thank you so much, Jackie. Blessings, blessings, blessing on you and your work here. Thank you, Amber. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's all for this episode. I hope you've been encouraged, and I'm so, so very thankful for Amber for being here today. Hey, you guys, she is releasing this book today, and so let's go cheer her on. She could use some Twitter tweets, some Facebook messages, some sharing over there on any social media you choose. Even Amazon reviews would be amazing. Let's just bless her today for serving us all with such transparent stories and for helping us not feel alone. And I hope that if you're carrying shame today or guilt today or unforgiveness in your heart, maybe you have a past that's been difficult and you haven't known how to release that. Seek somebody out, tell somebody today, uh, write to somebody, uh, surrender it to the Lord. Just just tell him very simply, Lord, here I am and I don't want to carry this shame anymore. And he is faithful to meet you there just like he met Amber on that linoleum floor. And I'm believing that for you today, no matter where you are, that God's going to meet you in a profound way if you seek him. Because he promises that as we seek him, we will find him when we seek him with our whole heart. And so as usual, you can find the show notes to this episode over at my website, JackieWatkins.com forward slash episode 54. You can always download the app to this podcast for free. It will make a little icon of mud stories on your phone. Just go to wherever you download apps, whether it's the Play Store on Android or the App Store on your phone and search for mud stories. You'll find it there. It's completely free for you. You can also find me on iTunes. And hey, by the way, if you enjoyed this episode with Amber, would you head over to Mud Stories on iTunes and leave a rating or review? That would really help more people find this podcast and be a part of our community that we're building, a community of people who have decided that even despite our brokenness, we are choosing to hope in the freedom that Christ has brought us that is already ours, the grace that has already been given to us for free, that we don't have to carry around our guilt and shame anymore. And we can rejoice in the fact that God has indeed set us free. So so more people can be exposed to this podcast. It really helps if you go over there, subscribe to the show, leave a rating or review. And I read each and every one of those and it encourages me greatly to keep going. And I'm just so very thankful for each and every one of you. Again, to get the show notes for this episode, all you have to do is pull out your cell phone wherever you are and text the words episode 54 with no spaces to the number 33444 and just follow the directions that are texted to you and we'll send you that PDF directly to your inbox so that you can remember all that Amber has shared in this episode. And I will say also, thank you for waiting for this episode. I know last week there was no episode released and I was traveling. I was able to attend the Declare Conference in Dallas, Texas and meet up with some fellow bloggers and writers and podcasters. And that was so great to network and encourage each other and spend time together just eating and hanging out and worshiping and You know, I hope wherever you are that you have your people, that you can, you know, get together with someone this week and, you know, share a meal, share a conversation, go on a walk together, reach out beyond yourself and 
connect with someone. I think connection is so important as we deal with these issues of guilt and shame. And community certainly is a tool that God used in Amber's story to heal her. And I think we underestimate the value of community. And I know for me this coming year, I'm going to be working on establishing more of an in real life community right where I am and really investing in that. And I hope you'll choose to do that too, because I think we'll be surprised how it fills us up and changes us when we connect with other people, especially when we share our brokenness with one another. And if there is something that you want to share with me personally, I would be honored to hear from you. You can email me at Jackie at JackieWatkins.com. You can leave me a voicemail message uh, on the side of my website. There's a speak pipe button you can push and leave me a voicemail, or you can reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter. Either way, I would love to hear what you thought of this episode, what resonated with you, and any ideas for future guests or any story of your own mud that you want to share with me or any ideas whatsoever, any feedback. I would love nothing more than hearing from you. So no matter what you're facing today, no matter where you've been or what lies ahead, may you find a grateful song to sing. Have a beautiful day. Never in you, Mama, feels a press upon my mind. I pull the shame that leaves me a little bit blind. I cannot see beyond the blame, and I never will find a way out. And then I feel you next to me. You lift my head to see. Your strong arm reaches to me. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. I never any mother feels a press upon my that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul as you song